Welcome to conference coverage presented by ReachMD Radio on XM160 and powered by Health Day, featuring the latest clinical information and research findings from the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists 58th Annual Clinical Meeting, May 15th through the 19th, 2010 in San Francisco. I'm your host, Dr. Markina. And I'm Sue Berg. This year's meeting attracted thousands of experts from around the world. More than 250 research findings and the latest unpublished research were presented on topics that range from cesarean delivery and contraception, experimental drugs and infertility, to infectious diseases, gynecologic cancer, menopause, obstetric procedures, and urogynecology. Several presentations highlighted the use of perinatal and postpartum depression, The meeting's opening ceremonies featured two of the country's leading experts on women's mental health, as well as Mary Jo Cody, who is the former First Lady of New Jersey. Cody suffered from depression during two pregnancies, which he's talked about publicly. Cody has also established a statewide campaign in New Jersey called Speak Up When You're Down, which he discussed at this meeting. OB-GYNs were identified as frequent providers of primary care to women, especially for women receiving pregnancy care. OB-GYNs were urged to identify women who are depressed and to facilitate treatment by asking their pregnant patients and new mothers about symptoms of depression. Researchers noted that untreated perinatal or postpartum depression is riskier than clinicians tend to believe. Women who are depressed are at risk for a host of health issues. They are, for example, more likely to smoke and take drugs, and major depression during pregnancy is associated with preeclampsia, preterm birth, and low birth weight. Maternal depression has also been linked with negative effects on infants' cognitive, neurologic, and motor skill development, as well as older children's mental health and behavior. In addition, presenters said that treatments for pregnant women suffering from depression appear to be more effective and the side effects less significant than previously found. Evidence-based treatment options for depression include psychotherapy and antidepressant medication. And other treatments are being studied for use in pregnancy, such as bright morning light therapy, acupuncture, and exercise. According to Dr. Catherine L. Wisner, who also spoke at the opening session, non-drug treatments are preferred by many pregnant women, but availability of accessible, acceptable, and affordable mental health intervention of any type is limited. Clinicians who implement a comprehensive disease management strategy for their patients may potentially reduce maternal disability and divert a new generation at risk. Significant research discussed at the meeting included a presentation on the emerging medical discipline known as oncofertility, the preservation of fertility options for women after cancer treatment. About 140,000 people under the age of 45 in the United States are diagnosed with cancer annually. But data is lacking on how many cancer patients face the loss of their fertility, since fertility outcomes depend on the course of the disease and treatment. Teresa K. Woodruff, Ph.D., delivered a lecture titled Oncofertility, the Preservation of Fertility Options for Young People with Cancer. Dr. Woodruff leads the Oncofertility Consortium at Northwestern University. The consortium counsels women with cancer about their fertility options by helping them monitor and potentially treat fertility loss during and after cancer treatment. The consortium also helps patients consider fertility-conserving measures before cancer treatment, such as freezing embryos or eggs, or newer options like ovarian tissue cryopreservation, in which ovarian tissue is frozen and can later be thawed and transplanted back into the woman's body. 
Ovarian tissue cryopreservation has so far resulted in about 20 live births around the world. However, researchers point out that transplantation presents the possible risk of reintroducing cancer cells back into the body, and it is not recommended for women who have a history of ovarian cancer, leukemia, or lymphoma. Among the prize-winning presentations at the meeting, first prize was awarded to a paper titled Optimal Time for Delivery in the Case of Preterm Premature Rupture of Membranes at 32 to 36 Weeks and 6 Days of Gestation by researchers at the University of Connecticut Health Center. During their study, these investigators followed 191 newborn infants born of pregnancies with preterm premature rupture of the membranes. Gestation was as few as 34 weeks and as many as 36 weeks and 6 days. The researchers found that in cases of premature rupture of the membrane, delivery at 34.1 weeks of gestation would avoid 95% of composite morbidity. The second-place prize-winning paper was titled Improved Documentation After the Implementation of a Standardized Shoulder Dystocia Delivery Form by researchers at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center in Boston. For this study, 180 vaginal deliveries complicated by shoulder dystocia were compared with 80 deliveries after implementation of a shoulder dystocia delivery form. The researchers concluded that inclusion of a standardized shoulder dystocia delivery form in the delivery record statistically improved the rate of documentation of estimated fetal weight and head-to-shoulder delivery interval. The third prize paper, titled Sexual Behavior in Obese and Overweight Adolescent Females, evaluated the behavior of almost 22,000 females who participated in the 2003-2007 to Youth Risk Behavior Survey. Researchers found that compared to girls of normal weight, obese and overweight girls were more likely to become sexually active before age 13, more likely to have more than three lifetime partners, and less likely to use any form of contraception. Researchers concluded that current educational practices are not addressing the needs of sexually active, obese adolescents. Two papers received this year's Donald F. Richardson Memorial Prize Paper Award. One was titled Post-Abortal Contraception, Evaluating the Safety and Efficacy of Immediate Post-Abortal IUD. This study followed 200 women who received an intrauterine device immediately following an abortion to prevent subsequent unwanted pregnancy and compared their treatment with 400 women who chose another form of contraception. Investigators concluded from their findings that IUD was safe and more effective than other forms of contraception and that the IUD should be available to eligible women at the time of abortion. The second Donald F. Richardson Memorial Prize-winning paper studied the effect on newborns of methadone treatment versus buprenorphine for opiate addiction during pregnancy. In some parts of the country, opiate addiction may be involved in as many as 21% of pregnancies. Methadone is considered the gold standard treatment for opiate addiction. Buprenorphine is widely considered safer for neonates, but its relative safety has not been well demonstrated. For this study, researchers conducted a retrospective chart review of 101 women who developed their babies at the Maine Medical Center in Portland, Maine, while they were taking methadone, compared to 68 women who took buprenorphine. This is one of the largest population studies to date on the neonatal effects of methadone versus buprenorphine. The average neonatal abstinence syndrome score among the buprenorphine infants was over 10, compared with over 12 on the methadone group. Buprenorphine infants spent nearly half as many days on average in the hospital compared to methadone infants, 
and about 48% of buprenorphine infants required treatment compared with about 73% of methadone infants. The researchers concluded that buprenorphine is a safer treatment than methadone for opiate addiction during pregnancy. Researchers presented data on a new treatment to potentially improve quality of life in women with abnormally heavy menstrual bleeding. Researchers randomly assigned nearly 300 women between the ages of 18 and 49 with heavy menstrual bleeding, defined as mean menstrual blood loss greater than 80 milliliters per menstrual cycle, to receive either a novel oral tranexamic acid formulation or placebo. The women took either 1.95 or 3.9 grams per day of tranexamic acid or placebo for up to five days per menstrual cycle for three cycles. The researchers measured quality of life with the Menorrhagia Impact Questionnaire, which includes questions regarding limitations on social, physical, and work activities during menstruation, as well as the women's perception of the influence of menstrual blood loss on quality of life. Researchers found that compared to placebo, tranexamic acid was associated with significant improvements in the quality of life. They also found that a higher dose of tranexamic acid was associated with greater improvements than a lower dose. Both dosage regimens were well tolerated. Vaccination against human papillomavirus strains 16 and 18 was found to be associated with significantly reduced abnormal cytology diagnoses in young women. This is according to researchers from the Oklahoma State University in Tulsa and colleagues. They compared nearly 10,000 women between the ages of 15 and 25 who received the ASO4 adjuvanted HPV-16 and HPV-18 vaccine and nearly 10,000 controls who received hepatitis A vaccine. Cervical samples were collected every six months for HPV DNA typing, and gynecologic and cytopathologic examinations were performed every 12 months. The researchers found that the vaccines were associated with a 57% efficacy rate in preventing high-grade squamous intraepithelial lesions, or SIL. Further, the vaccines demonstrated a 67% efficacy rate in preventing low-grade SIL and a 56% efficacy rate against atypical squamous cells of undetermined significance associated with HPV-16 and HPV-18. Researchers also found that irrespective of HPV type found on cervical sampling, the vaccine was associated with about a 40% efficacy rate against high-grade SIL, a 14% efficacy rate against low-grade SIL, and an 8% efficacy rate for preventing atypical squamous cells of undetermined significance. The authors conclude that there are potential public health and cost benefits of the AS4 adjuvanted HPV-16 and HPV-18 vaccines. The medication flibanserin may be an effective treatment for premenopausal women with generalized acquired hypoactive sexual desire disorder. This was according to researchers who randomly assigned 1,300 women with a condition defined as bothersome decreased sexual desire to receive either flibanserin or placebo at bedtime every evening for 24 weeks. Participants rated their improvement using the 7-point Patient's Global Impression of Improvement Scale, which ranges from 1, very much improved, through 4, no change, to 7, very much worse. A significantly higher proportion of the flibanserin group, about 48%, reported feeling very much improved, much improved, or minimally improved, compared to 30% in the placebo group who similarly rated their improvement. All three of these grades of improvement were considered by researchers to represent a meaningful benefit. 
The authors concluded that a higher proportion of women who received flibanserin reported a meaningful benefit from use of the study medication compared with those in the placebo group. Over 40% in the flibanserin group reported meaningful benefit versus about 25% in the placebo group. The study was funded by the pharmaceutical company Boehringer Ingelheim, which manufactures the drug flibanserin. Research was presented at the meeting on the rates of treatment success among women with stress incontinence who received retropubic or transobturator mid-urethral slings. The study was also published online May 17th in the New England Journal of Medicine to coincide with the meeting. Researchers randomly assigned nearly 600 women to receive either a retropubic or transobturator mid-urethral sling. The majority of these women, 565, completed the year-long assessment. Objectively assessed successment of the treatment was measured by negative stress tests, a negative test pad, and no retreatment at one-year follow-up. The researchers found that rates of treatment success were about 80% in the retropubic sling group and 77% for the transobdurator sling group. In addition, subjective success was defined as patient-reported absence of stress incontinence symptoms with no leakage episodes and no retreatment. Researchers found that these subjective measures of success were similar to objective measures, with about 62% of patients in the retropubic sling group reporting success and nearly 56% reporting success in the transobdurator sling group. In terms of complications and side effects, researchers found that retropubic slings were associated with voiding dysfunction requiring surgery in 2.7% of patients versus no patients in the transobdurator sling group. Neurological symptoms occurred in 4% of the retropubic sling group versus about 9% in the transobdurator sling group. There were no significant differences between the groups in postoperative urge incontinence, satisfaction with procedure results, and quality of life. In an editorial that accompanied the study in the New England Journal of Medicine, Dr. Rebecca G. Rogers from the University of New Mexico Health Sciences Center in Albuquerque writes that this trial confirms that the retropubic and transobturator mid-urethral slings are very similar with respect to both efficacy and overall complication rates. The editorial goes on to say that what may change as a result of this research is how patients are counseled regarding the benefits and harms associated with the surgery so that surgical choices better match the patient's goals and wishes. Thank you for listening to conference coverage from the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists 58th Annual Clinical Meeting, which took place May 15th through the 19th, 2010, in San Francisco. Conference coverage is a presentation of ReachMD Radio, broadcast on XM160 and by live stream at ReachMD.com, and powered by Health Day.